Welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Steve English, Neil Morrison, David Emmett here today just to talk about some of the biggest news that's affected MotoGP over the last couple of months. We've just had one of the busiest three-day periods that any of us can really remember in the off-season. Yamaha just stealing all the headlines with their news that Fabio Quattararo, Maverick Vinales, and then today, as we're recording this, Jorge Lorenzo signs on as a test rider. There's the impact on Valentino Rossi for this. There's the impact on the rest of the grid for this. So we're going to have a quick Paddock Pass podcast just looking at uh, this big news story. So, David, before you join us, can you confirm that you have not signed a contract with Yamaha for next season? I'm afraid I'm not at liberty to discuss that right at the moment, Steve. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I would be violating my the terms of my contract and would uh, have to pay millions and millions of euros. A refusal to confirm or deny there, David. Neil, what about yourself? Are you going to announce a big switch from your work as a commentator and a journalist to suddenly being that second test rider for Yamaha? Yeah, I can't say anything right at this moment, Steve, but you should have a little bit more information by the time we get to Sepang for the first preseason test. So all will be revealed there. Yeah, from from my experience of uh, crashing multiple scooters, I don't think I'm uh, too, uh, too likely to be hired by Yamaha, but... Uh, Tell you what, boys, it has been a fairly important week for MotoGP. We've all been waiting for the silly season to kick off. And it does remind us a little bit of a couple of years ago when Yamaha made their quick decision to re-sign Maverick Vinales. And Neil, this is one of those stories that I don't think anyone saw coming this early in the year. But obviously enough, we knew that it was going to happen relatively soon. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, as you said in your introduction there, I mean, it does have quite big implications in several aspects. I mean, it's it has big implications for Yamaha. I think it um, it really shows that they mean business. Um, I don't think anyone uh, would say that this is kind of a, a bad decision. In some respects, it's a it's a bit of a dream team. You've got um, you know two of the fastest uh, riders that are under thirty years old, um, and probably the, the two guys that proved in the second half of last year that they can consistently challenge Marquez. They're going to be in the factory team from two thousand and twenty one together. Um, and then you have the repercussions for silly season. I mean, Cordero and Vinales were two guys, realistically, uh, that um, possibly Ducati could have signed. Maybe Suzuki uh, would have been sniffed around as well. Um, so it has big implications for the riders market. And then, you know, as you mentioned, Rossi. I mean, um, it's, uh, yeah, it definitely feels like a very significant uh, moment. It's hard to imagine Valentino Rossi being outside a factory team on a grid and you know will this hasten um his decision to retire before we really delve into all all of the implications of this and what it means just one question for you this is also a big moment in terms of moto gp because suddenly valentino rossi confirmed that he won't be a factory yamaha rider for next season but far more important than that it looks like the reaction from fans from people on social media is an acceptance that this was inevitable as well. There hasn't been that mass outpouring of what are Yamaha doing to get rid of Rossi or to not bring Rossi back for next season. It looks like there's been a sea change where people realise that you know there are options that are just better than a 41-year-old on the factory Yamaha. Yeah, I mean, that to me, that's been the biggest surprise, really, because, um, I mean, I saw a number of people ran polls on Twitter and various other social media uh, bits and bobs, um, even GP1 in Italy, where you would expect to see lots and lots of Rossi fans, it was still, you know, like 60-40... Um, uh, 70, 30, all in favour of, all saying that basically Quattararo deserves to be on the bike rather than, rather than Valentino Rossi, sort of affirming that 
choice, saying it was the, it was the right choice. So, yeah, I think it really is a. I think it really is different. Uh, obviously, it helped seeing Quartararo have such a fantastic season last year, uh, finishing ahead of Rossi on the uh, in the championship. Um, he had more podiums last year, um, and it, yeah, I, I think even hardcore Rossi fans, as much as they want to keep watching uh, Rossi race, it's been painful for them to watch him not be able uh, to succeed. Uh, he's that, That's been the most difficult thing, I think. But what do you think of the decision from Yamaha to officially move on from Rossi in terms of that factory team? Obviously, they have still said that they could give him a factory bike, but it would be in the Patronus team or you know, if the VR46 team doesn't end up moving up to the MotoGP class. Yeah, for sure. They, they did say that it would it would be a fully supported, full factory bike with full uh, team of Yamaha staff around him if he does decide to stay on. So, okay, it would be in a satellite team, but, you know, he still would essentially have uh, kind of factory status. He would just be outside the, the factory team. But, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a brave move. It's probably one that's been coming uh, for the past couple of years. Um, and, um, yeah, I think it's... You know, we kind of had this impression for for so long that that basically Rossi had a, a seat in that factory Yamaha squad for life. You know, as long as he wanted to keep going, uh, it was there for him. And um, I remember, I think it was at Sepang last year, one of the Spanish publications uh, had an interview with Lynn Jarvis, and I think Jarvis was kind of saying that he was in a bit of a conundrum because he had. Uh, if, if Rossi was going to stay on and race in 2021, it was like, well, do we keep Maverick or, or do we promote Fabio Cuadraro? And it seemed to be an idea that one of those two might slip away. Um, but I think uh, in the cold, hard light of day, you look at results over the last uh, 12 months. Um, I mean, Rossi hasn't been on the podium since uh, the third race of last year. I think that's that equals his longest stint off the podium in his entire Grand Prix career. Um, and that was arguably during part of last year when the Yamaha was one of the best bikes in the grid so um I think it's a it's a brave move um and I think the way they've kind of the way they've handled it uh bringing all this news out together um you know it definitely does show that um they do have their eyes on the future and they are starting to look realistically at what life will be like once Rossi retires when you look at last season for the three riders basically Quattararo led the most laps out of all the Yamaha riders and when you look at the number of laps that himself and Vinales were in those top three positions I think it was round about 185 laps for both of them and when you compare that to Rossi I think he only had about 50 laps where he was inside those top three positions for Rossi it seemed that he was just spending a lot more of his time inside you know the top five sixth position so for Yamaha pretty easy to make this decision in terms of performance but one of the biggest factors for me is probably that I remember going out to Suzuka last year for the eight hours and trying to find out what was happening with the Yamaha World Superbike lineup. And obviously at that stage, Toprak had signed his contract with Yamaha. It hadn't been confirmed. And I was really surprised at the amount of new faces in the Yamaha hierarchy. All the people that brought Rossi over in 2004, all the people that brought him back were gone. So there wasn't the same level of loyalty from Yamaha hierarchy as there had been, say, 10 years earlier. And suddenly, those people were now looking to find their version of Valentino Rossi. That could be Quattararo, it could be Vinales, it could be someone else. But they were now in a position where they didn't have that same loyalty to Rossi and they were able to look to make a change. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's been a lot of changes inside uh, Yamaha recently. I mean, like basically 2018... 
Uh, I mean, we all remember the press conference at the Red Bull Ring in uh, 2018 after qualifying, after uh, Yamaha were basically nowhere. Um, and that wasn't necessarily the catalyst for change, but it was uh, just a reinforcement of some of the processes of change which they'd already started. Um, uh, definitely some of the changes have meant that sort of Rossi has lost a lot of his uh, sort of supporters inside uh, or most staunch supporters inside uh, inside of Yamaha but I think it's also much more about the fact that um, Yamaha were really forced into this decision by Ducati because Ducati have gone into the market very very aggressively and they were chasing uh, Maverick Vinales very hard they were chasing Fabio Quartararo very hard and uh, basically unless those two were in the factory Yamaha team they would have lost one uh, one or both of them and and um, if they stick with Valentino Rossi for 2021, um, or even if they wait until he wants to make his decision, that would have been maybe Mugello at the earliest, Barcelona, Assen. Um, that's a long time to have to wait. And by that time, someone else, Fabio or Maverick's signature would have been under another contract. We opened it up just to get some questions from listeners for this show. And one of the questions came from Sam Me, And uh, the question was, so how close were Ducati to getting Vinales or Quattararo? Uh, as far as I know, um, Vinales, they came very close to getting Maverick Vinales. Uh, basically, Vinales was uh, getting in touch with uh, Yamaha to say, listen, I've got this contract uh, that I've been offered. I need to know what you've got, uh, what you're going to offer. And uh, that pushed Yamaha into pulling the trigger. Um, it was really, I mean, you know, they almost got Vinales. I think the same, probably the same with Quartararo. I suspect that, because this seems to have taken place over the sort of uh, the, the, the Christmas period, as it were. And uh, Ducati went in very, very hard, presumably, because they also wanted to uh, have some news sort of ahead of their 2020 launch. Um, and um, it got, they uh, basically, because... Ducati were chasing these riders so hard it forced Yamaha to sit down, make a decision. Okay, this is it. And one thing I've got to say, it's also it's a really brave decision. I mean, it really is brave saying, um, "Listen, Valentino, you are no longer part of our plans uh, for the future," which is uh, uh, unthinkable up to you know even just a couple of uh, even just a couple of years ago to, to 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 think of telling Rossi because this was very much Yamaha's decision and not Rossi's decision. Basically, the press releases that we saw about this were it did seem that in Rossi's statement, he was trying to make it clear that he had these discussions with Yamaha. He wasn't ready to make a decision and that they all agreed together that it would be best for Yamaha to make their choice to go with Quattraro and Vinales and basically kick the can on Rossi a little bit further down the road. But what was your reading on on that situation? Yeah, I mean, uh, the last two times that Rossi's renewed, uh, 2016 and 2018, um, both of those occasions he had signed two-year extensions. Um, You could say that maybe he didn't have the best preseason before he did that, but his form at the end of the, you know, the the season before he signed the contract was, you know, pretty good. He was like there challenging for podiums and race wins. And, and, you know, I think that... um, 
I was I was trying to think, you know, how Rossi would have reacted to the news that they had uh, they had signed Quadraro for 2021, um, and basically pushed him out of the the factory seat. But you know, he's not. Um, you know, he's obviously not a stupid guy. He's, uh, he's very plugged in. And um, I was going back through some of the things that he had said last year, you know, and he is perfectly aware of, of the situation. He, you know, there were several times he commented last year, which <clears throat> give the indication that he, he knows that this is basically the last roll of the dice. Um, when he was describing or when he was explaining his reasons for uh, parting ways with uh, Silvano Galbacera, his crew chief from 2014. And, Picking a basically a MotoGP rookie to step up into his place, um, you know, he was saying that yeah, you know, I could have possibly just sailed through my final year of MotoGP and just accepted my fate, but I just thought, you know, fuck it, let's try something new, let's try something to inject some fresh en- energy into it, um, and you know, in, in this case, I, I still think he probably is like really undecided, um, and uh, and as David just mentioned there, you can't really you can't really wait now until the sixth race of the season. Um, if you're in a factory team, because there's going to be so much movement around you. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's um, it, it's probably it's probably the the best move for for everyone involved. And you know, Rossi will probably be a bit um, a bit put out. I mean, you know, um, he's had so much success with Yamaha. Um, he's pretty much synonymous with that brand. Um, but I think even he will probably look at the decision and think, I can't really argue with it. When you look at potentially one of the big winners from all this it could well be the Petronas team as well Petronas SRT to potentially replace Fabio Quattararo the bright young hope with Valentino Rossi like that could be a massive turn for that team as well yeah it could be yeah exactly um Rossi in that team with uh, Franco Morbidelli I think he was asked about this um by uh, the Gazette della Sport in an interview that they did just uh, at the end of last year and he said you know it could be it could be it could be an option um so I wouldn't rule that out just yet um but I still you know just considering uh, Rossi's presence and everything that he's done it just it does seem quite hard to imagine him uh, operating out of a satellite structure um, but then you know Petronas is a big sponsor um, huge backing really professional outfit I mean you know it's it's done remarkably well in its uh, limited time in the MotoGP class so it's it's by no means uh, you know some um, you know, outfit that's run out of the side of a van. I mean, we are talking about uh, one of the most professional teams in the sport. Um, but just in terms of uh, of status, um, yeah, it's, it's it seems quite hard to imagine. I would argue that um, uh, Valentino taking Valentino uh, Rossi instead of Fabio Quartararo is not necessarily an upgrade, given the uh, the results of the two riders last year. Um, it's you know Quartararo was clearly better than uh, the, than Rossi last year. It'll be very good for certainly be fantastic for the um, uh, for sponsorship. It'll be fantastic for uh, publicity for the team. Uh, I think uh, certainly Raslan Rosali, the, uh, the the head of um, uh, the Spang circuit, would absolutely love to have uh, Valentino Rossi to be able to parade around at media events. Um, but um, yeah, in terms in terms of results, and again, you know, twenty twenty one, there's a, a bunch of rookies coming up, um, including Luca Marini, uh, uh, Rossi's uh, uh, Rossi's brother. So. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of people in Moto Two who might who they might want to bring up instead. 
We don't know what's going to happen with Franco Morbidelli, of course, because, I mean, Morbidelli had, you know, he had an all right season, but uh, he got outclassed by sort of the, the, the other Yamaha riders. And he's really going to need much better results next year, um, or the, sorry, this year, 2020, to be able to justify keeping his seat. So I think it gets very interesting. For Morbidelli, the last five, six races of the year, he did make that big step forward. And now the question is going to be if he can carry that forward into the 2020 season. Dave, we've got a question from uh, Miguel de Quinta as well, just about what Valentino will do next. And um, what do you see as his potential landing spots if it's not Petronas? Or do you see him moving into just, uh, you know, he's talked in the past about wanting to do some sports car events. Or do you see him moving into World Superbikes is the question from Miguel. I don't think he'll go to World Superbikes. I think there might have been a period in time, maybe sort of around the time that he was in Ducati, that he might have gone to World Superbikes, um, uh, perhaps when he came back from there. Uh, but now I think, you know, he's 40, he's, he's 41. Uh, I think he has pretty much done most of the bike racing that he needs to do what he wants is to win another MotoGP title and if he can't win another MotoGP title he might prefer to do something else I personally think he's going to go off and race uh, uh, endurance cars um, uh, there it would be quite a nice um objective to have to win the Le Mans 24 hours for example because there's only ever been one other motorcycle racer who has done that I think Mike Hellwood um, you were saying yesterday Mike Hellwood got on the podium at the at Le Mans uh, once in the 1960s but um, uh, you know the, he went to Abu Dhabi and rode and, and drove the 12 hours with uh, Uccio Salucci his, his friend and was it Luca Marini, Marini his brother and um, they won their class, and I think they ended up on the podium overall. So it's, uh, it, you know, he likes winning. He loves winning. All of these races love winning. This would be a chance for him to go out uh, and succeed, compete, win, and um, do something different. It's almost impossible to see a situation where he'll actually be in a position to win something like the Le Mans 24 Hours as an overall winner. But as a class winner, there is potential for that. He's not. He's never going to get an LMP1 ride, which is one of the things that I've seen written over the last couple of days, just since this news was announced, that you know a big manufacturer would be interested in him. That's pie-in-the-sky stuff, never going to happen. Because even for ex-Formula 1 drivers to readjust to going back into the LMP1 class in sports cars, <laughs> they struggle to do it. They're off the pace, and that can be world champions, Grand Prix winners, anyone like that. So for Rossi... To win the Le Mans 24 hours, it's never going to happen. But for him to win in his class, which would be similar to what he did at the Abu Dhabi race, where you go and you race a Ferrari 488 or something like that, and you're racing in the what used to be the GT3 class, I can't remember what it's called at the moment. But if he's racing in something like that, then he's got potential because a lot of the time in those classes, you can have professional drivers mixed with amateur drivers, and there is the potential to be able to get a decent supported drive Something like AF Corsa would love to have Rossi racing the Ferrari at Le Mans. They'd be able to put together a really good program for him. So to put himself into a position to win in a class is possible. But a lot of the stories that you see about Rossi and his talent in a car, he's talented, but he's not at the same level as what I think a lot of car, uh, bike journalists assume he'd be able to do because they look back fondly on the Ferrari F1 tests and different things like that so it'll be interesting to see what he does end up deciding to do for you neil 
what do you think is the most likely course of action for him? Um, you know, it's it's a tough one to say. At this moment in time, I would say it's probably likely that he'll retire. Um, I mean, you obviously can't look too much into the tests that we had at the end of last year in November because it's the end of the year. Everyone's quite fatigued. Um, he was also getting used to his new crew chief, David Munoz. But you looked at his performances at both uh, Valencia and Jerez and they weren't anything spectacular. It was more of the same as what we saw pretty much in the majority of 2019. I think he was 10th and 11th in those tests, whereas Vinales was fastest at both. So I I don't know. You know, it's it's. I'm always very wary of, of writing Rossi off because I've done it before and he's proved me emphatically wrong uh, in several occasions. But um, I just, I kind of feel that if he's not up scoring podiums in the first couple of races, um... Yeah, I, you know, I don't think it, he finds it fun um, finishing 10 seconds back of Maverick Vinales every single week. Um, he talked at Silverstone last year after he qualified in the front row of how sort of almost sad and depressed he had been uh, in the weeks before that because his performances just weren't up to scratch. So, you know, this isn't a guy that just wants to be there. He wants to be there fighting, competing with the possibility of achieving podiums, maybe even race wins. Um, and from what we've seen so far in the preseason, yes, it's extremely early to be saying that. But from what we saw in 2019 and the start of this preseason, um, I, there was nothing there that suggested he was going to make that massive jump to get right back up towards the front. To move on from the Rossi angle and this, just to talk pretty quickly about what it means for Quattararo and Vinales. You were at the Qatar test in 2018 when Vinales was confirmed. And one of the things he said was it was really important to go into the season without thinking in terms of having to secure his ride and always answering the questions about what you're going to do next year. For both Quattararo and Vinales, they're now really able just to focus in on just getting to work for the 2020 season. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, the, the one caveat would be that uh, Vinales signing so early in 2018 really didn't help him at all. And 2018 was uh, something of a disaster for him. Um, and it basically all year we were asking, what was he thinking doing that so early? But, you know, Yamaha certainly seems to be in a different place two years down the line. Um, the factory, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, it's kind of there's a lot of joined up thinking there. Um, you look at the rider lineup. I mean, with Lorenzo as a uh, as a as a factory test rider. I mean, I think that's a, an inspired move. Um, the bike is really good. Uh, there seems to be better communication between the factory and the race team. Riders' complaints are being listened to. So I think this can only this can only be a positive for both uh, Quartararo and Vinales starting the year. Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, one of the uh, I, again. Ducati putting pressure on Yamaha has really worked out well for Yamaha uh, because, as I understand it, one of the uh, conditions for Vinales to sign with uh, with Yamaha was that he would get to lead development. Um, and I think you also see a little bit of the hand of Maverick Vinales uh, behind the Lorenzo signing because, it, I mean, Lorenzo loved the bike. I mean, Vinales, when, when he jumped on the bike in 2017, he won the first two races and then I think he finished second in the uh, um, uh, in race number three or number four and then it all sort of went downhill from there. So he, he rates Lorenzo's input very, very highly. Uh, the fact that Yamaha signed Quartararo also means that they are 
uh, looking to the future and they it, it does mean they're not going to be listening to Rossi so much because Rossi is not going to uh, be on the bike so long they will I mean they will value his input and use it for sure um, but when it comes to making choices they will choose the direction which Lorenzo gives and the direction which Vinales gives and I think if we are to look at the last four or five years um, when Rossi was in that position of leading development, I mean, things became very confused and, um, well, didn't really go to plan. And I know uh, that in part was to do with um, some internal issues and, and, and organizational issues that Yamaha had at the time. But, you know, when Lorenzo left, there was a, a kind of a void there for three seasons, basically, in which they were chasing their tails. Um, and I'm not saying that that was just Rossi's fault, but at in those circumstances, he and his uh, his crew were incapable of bringing them forward, really. Yeah, I mean, I also wonder, because uh, we saw after the summer break uh, last year, uh, Yamaha were bringing lots and lots of updates. They brought, they brought the swing arm. They brought a um, uh, the new exhaust, uh, the swing arm, the carbon swing arm, and it was very much Rossi who was trying out all of these things. Whereas Vinales was getting annoyed that they were sticking the thing on the bike, and after I think maybe two or three races, he just stopped. Um, he just said, "I'm not testing it anymore. Uh, give it to Valentino if he wants to try it." So I wonder if that's also signifying that Valentino was searching for something from the bike rather than what we saw with both Vinales and Quattararo really which was you know okay this is the bike let's see what it can do let's get everything we can out of it before we start messing around with it that brings us on look we've mentioned Lorenzo obviously his deal now is the Yamaha test rider and an awful lot of interest in what that's going to mean for Yamaha you were talking earlier there about the impact that it could make for Vinales how much that they were able to use what uh, Lorenzo had developed before the 2017 season but Dave we've got a question from Little Bong as well just relating to Jorge Lorenzo and the question is what's the reason that Lorenzo choose uh, chose Yamaha rather than Ducati um I mean the well Ducati really really wanted Lorenzo again this is it's been a, this has been a complete victory for Yamaha and a bit of a disaster for for Ducati because all of the people uh, that they wanted um, have been gone. Um, Gigi Delinia highly. I mean, we saw in Austria last year where there were rumours at Brno in Austria where there were rumours that um, uh, Delinia was trying to get hold of um, uh, trying to get Lorenzo to sw- switch for 2020 uh, to put him on the Pramac bike instead of um, instead of Jack Miller. Um, Delinia really, really rated his uh, input very highly we also saw i mean yeah the, the bike was very good the bike uh, uh, lorenzo's input genuinely helped advance the uh, desmo sedici it was a much better bike um what i think why why did lorenzo choose yamaha over ducati because lorenzo trusted the yamaha he never really trusted the ducati he could ride the ducati but he didn't enjoy it it was always a fight whereas the i mean like the the he could dream the uh, the yamaha he could ride the yamaha with his eyes closed without without thinking about it that was what made him look so fantastic because he really did look 
at one with that motorcycle. He was he just he just flowed over that motorcycle like liquid, rather than uh, actually having to fight it, which he had to do much more with other bikes. So I think that I think also perhaps his um, his injuries played a role. The fact that riding the Yamaha is much less physically demanding than uh, obviously than the Honda, but also the also the Ducati. Uh, I think he perhaps there's this thought in the back of his mind like oh, I could end up injured. Um, he trusts the Yamaha, you know, not to spit him off unannounced. Um, so I think he just feels much more comfortable. Again, he knows the structure. He knows everyone inside it. He knows much more what to expect. It's a, uh, it, it, it's a, it's an easier situation all around. I think that's, that, that's certainly sort of the impression that I get. Yeah, and you certainly look at um, Yamaha's test riders over the past 10 years in MotoGP. You had like the two Japanese riders, Nagasuga and Nozan, who were, you know, capable riders, but you certainly wouldn't say that they would ever be challenging for the top 10 consistently consistently in uh, MotoGP. And then Folger last year, I mean, um, yeah, we didn't really get to see that much of Folger um, on the, the Yamaha test bike. Um, and... You know, Folger, a very talented rider, but uh, just the one year of MotoGP experience um, and a handful of Grand Prix wins, as opposed to, to Lorenzo. I mean, you know, one of the greatest ever, um, one of the most consistent riders ever. Um, and yeah, I mean, if Yamaha were able to take the strides that they did last year with someone like Folger doing the, the miles on the test track, I mean, you really got to think that uh, things will only be improved by Lorenzo being there and doing that uh, sort of donkey work on the test track uh, in the months ahead. From that, we've got a question in as well from Brendan Collins. And uh, Brendan was asking, um, how soon do you think we'll be able to see the impact from Lorenzo and uh, the development work that he'll be able to do? Because we saw in the past that uh, obviously for the pre-Sapang test, the test riders are out in action pretty much straight away. Obviously, last year, Danny Pedrosa, with his injuries, delayed his um, time developing the KTM. But how soon do you expect to see Lorenzo on the bike? And how quickly do you think that he can make a positive impact on the bike? Uh, well, I think he's he's going to be at Sepang, isn't he? I mean, uh, I think that was in the press release that we got uh, this morning, which is Wednesday, 30th of January. Um, so, yeah, he's going to be there. Um, as for, you know, when we're going to see his impact, I mean, it, I think Yamaha is already in a pretty good pretty good place. Um, I'd be surprised if Quartararo and Vinales weren't, maybe even Morbidelli as well, weren't up at the sharp end at this test consistently. Um, so, uh, yeah, what, Lorenzo's influence, I mean, I'm not too sure we're going to see that immediately. It might be a couple of months down the line. Um, I mean, KTM are only really seeing Danny Pedrosa's input. Um, well, it's factory test, it's factory team, sorry, now you're only starting to see Danny Pedrosa's full input um, and that's been a, basically a year since he's been there with KTM so yeah I would say um, well, we're going to see Lorenzo pretty soon on the bike and then you know a couple of months down the line we might start seeing some of the good things that he's doing away from uh, the watching media. David just question for you on this topic as well because obviously we saw that Suzuki made huge strides with Sylvain Gentoli as their test rider just to be able to come up with the engine character that they needed to then bring into MotoGP. But the test rider role over the last few years really has evolved where it's gone from just being about spinning laps and uh, making sure that parts are reliable. A lot of the manufacturers are probably still going to use their Japanese test riders for that. 
but you do need to have an, a proper top tier talent that's able to bring forward the performance of the bike now as well. Yeah, I mean, th- th- there's a lot of factors that go into it. Some of it is just the fact that there are now, you know, we've got six factories. Uh, even Aprilia or KTM are not that far off. You know, they are they're, they're basically really troubling the top ten. Um, uh, that there's there's a lot of bikes to try to fit into the uh, into the top ten. So you need uh, the, you know, the, the margins are getting smaller and smaller. The fact that so much testing has been uh, restricted in an in an effort to cut costs that's made a difference as, uh, as well um that's basically to save the private teams the uh, the you know the, the satellite team so they don't have to spend money going testing um just to try to keep up with the factories uh the, the so the factory riders don't get the extra the, the extra time on the bike um uh, but that nobody does the only people who do are the private uh, are, are the test teams uh and so because the factory riders can't spend so much time on the bike it really means that you need as good a rider on there as possible and i think that to me ducati led the way in this by putting michele piero on the bike uh, by proving that a rider who is reasonably competitive uh, uh actually in a MotoGP race um, can make a, a real difference to the development of the bike. And the others have uh, basically just followed suit. And now, uh, I mean, you know, Danny Pedrosa and Jorge Lorenzo as test riders, that's, it's, it's almost unbelievable. I mean, you know, they could get in and, 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 and compete. And you just have to say, the person that's laughing here um you said about Vinales, obviously um probably thinking that lorenzo would be a good idea i'm sure he does think that but i mean last year so many people were, were telling us that you know 90 percent of what fabio Quadraro does on the yamaha is basically jorge lorenzo um so lorenzo being in that position i mean his style is pretty much what Quadraro does, you know, so that'll be completely relevant for for Fabio. Watching what Lorenzo's doing, you know, he's he'll be able to basically take a lot from that. So um, yeah, that should that should work out well for him, I would say. One last question from our listeners as well. Tim Higgs has uh, tweeted in at Paddock Pass Pod, and uh, for any of our listeners in future shows, just make sure if you want if you have any questions, just uh, to tweet into either at Paddock Pass Pod or to myself or david or neil directly and we'll try and get the questions answered but uh, tim's asked uh, what do you see as being any of the potential repercussions for lorenzo if he does decide to race because obviously he was let out of the second year of his honda contract so that he could retire from MotoGP. but now it seems that it's retire from racing as uh, tim tim puts it and still allow him to test like if he decides to do a wild card do you see any action being taken against him by honda I don't think so. I mean, I, it, it would not be sort of impossible, but it was fairly clear to both sides at the end of uh, last year that um, uh, Lorenzo was pretty much done racing. He'd um, uh, he had no intention of uh, of racing. But the the thing is, in these contracts, basically, once you agree to end the contract, to terminate the contract, that's it. Uh, there, uh, I, I mean, if it had been, if it had wanted to go testing at the end of last year, uh, then that would have been a serious issue for Honda. Uh, but they let him out of his contract at the end of, uh, at the end of December. As of the 1st of January, he was free to do, uh, to go off and do what he pleased, uh, more or less. There might have been a, a, a restriction cl- a, a clause in there, but I don't think, I don't think there was, I don't think, 
Um, Honda were particularly worried about losing uh, Lorenzo. He didn't look like he was in any shape to cause them very much trouble elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think there's going to be uh, any repercussions. Yeah, and it's probably just worth pointing out that the press release uh, about Lorenzo moving to Yamaha as their test rider did say that the factory is very much open to the idea of uh, Lorenzo wildcarding at some point this year, but uh, that will ultimately fall on the rider's shoulders whether he does decide to do that. So, I mean, we are talking about a possibility here. I I, I have a question for the group. Um, do we think that this change um, makes it more likely that uh, either Maverick or Fabio can beat Mark Marquez? I think it'll make it more likely, but not likely either, because <laughs> to beat Mark Marquez, you need to have, you're going to need to have a bike advantage, and it's going to need to be quite a significant bike advantage, or you're going to just need for Mark to make mistakes or to get hurt or anything like that. I don't think that bringing in Lorenzo to try and uh, help develop the bike's going to make that much of an impact to close down the talent gap to Marquez. Of course, the one thing that has to be said about that as well is with another year, Quattararo could make another step. Like uh, The one thing about Fabio is last year he didn't really have pressure. There was no expectation on him whenever he signed for Petronas other than this feeling that he's the luckiest man in the world because he had struggled in Moto2 other than the start of his Moto3 career hadn't really lived up to expectations. And then suddenly, once he's on a big bike, he was able to make this massive step forward and show the talent that everyone had seen in the CEV Championship but hadn't seen realised in MotoGP. How's he going to react whenever he's expected over a 20-race season to be able to beat Marquez and to be a championship challenger? That's going to be the biggest impact rather than Lorenzo coming in to help develop the bike or any of the other changes that we're seeing. Yeah, I would uh, go along with what Steve said there, Div. Um, I mean, yes, it, it, it's certainly going to help uh, both of those guys, um, in particular Quadraro. Um, I think it's it's pretty vital for him to have to have stayed at Yamaha because, um, you know, uh, I guess there's the example of Johan Zarco, you know, that sp- style that he has is very specific and might not be completely applicable to other bikes on the grid. So I think it's really important that he stayed there. But whether that will be enough to be Marquez, I mean, that, that very much remains to be seen um, at this point in Marquez's career. He does kind of seem to be unbeatable uh, over 19, 20 races. But, um, but yeah, I think Yamaha is certainly doing all that they can um, at this moment in time to, uh, to well, push Marquez as hard as possible. Yeah, for me, I, I'm a little bit more optimistic than you. I mean, well, depending if you're a Marquez fan, that would make me pessimistic. But um, uh, yeah, I'm a bit more uh, optimistic in the sense that I think this is a serious challenge to um, uh, to Marquez's domination of the sport. Um, as you say, I mean, Mar- Marquez is at another level at the moment, um, but the rest of the good, well, the rest of the grid have the good fortune that it really is Mark doing the winning and not the bike. Uh, the bike is, you know, it, it's fast in a straight line and that's, um, uh, and, and it will, it will turn quite well, but it feels fairly horrible, uh, for, for the rest of it. So I think, um, this, 
obviously having Quartararo, as you said, really good point about the about pressure on Quartararo because uh, you know he, he, there was no expectation on him, and now there's a massive expectation on him. Uh, he's expected to win a race in in 2020, and if he doesn't win a race in 2020, then uh, we're in a completely different ball game. Um, but he also looks to have sort of the tools to take on. He certainly wasn't afraid of Mark uh, uh, last year. Uh, that that's very exciting. I think the bike, the 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 direction of travel for Yamaha in terms of development is absolutely the right direction. The bike's getting better. They need a bit more horsepower, uh, but the bike itself is clearly much better than the uh, than the Honda right now, um, with the exception of uh, of horsepower. And I think with you know Maverick and with uh, Fabio uh, and. If this is also Valentino's last hurrah, if he's going to retire, uh, then I think he might also push that a little bit harder. He might be willing to take that little bit more risk uh, to try and win a race before he goes, to try and uh, go out on a high. I think it gets. Um, uh, I think it's going to make Mark Marcus's life a lot more complicated than it was certainly than it was in 2019. Brings me to the last question I have for you in today's show. But uh, Dave mentioned there about uh, Rossi. If you're a fan of Valentino, do you book your flights for Valencia now and think that's going to be the last we see of him? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, although do you I... get free cancellation, though? Do you, do, you, do you get your book your flights with free cancellation, though, Neil? <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Neil books his flights a week before flying inside out with free cancellation on it. <laughs> Yeah, <clears throat> it's kind of given the uh, given the impression that uh, there's some sort of structure to my life uh, that I would be <laughs> booking such things and uh, so far in advance. But yeah, I would say it, at this point in time, it's probably going to be his last race. But I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure about that. Last question for you then on today's show: If you're a Jorge Lorenzo fan, which races do you book flights for, thinking that he might be he might be taking part in as a wild card? Obviously, there's some races with a Monday test after the Grand Prix. Uh, yeah, I mean Barcelona um, uh, for sure. Uh, he's won there. Um, I don't think he will race at Jerez, even though he could. Um, and Barcelona is the only race where there is a test afterwards um, before the end of the season. Um, well, otherwise, well, take your pick. I would say Assen, maybe. I would say um, uh, possibly Aragon. Um, that's a track where he's uh, where where he's gone really well in the past. So Valencia, um, yeah. Sorry, I would say Valencia would be quite a likely one. He's got a fantastic yeah, record yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's also excellent shout. Yeah, Valencia, and also because uh, you know Valencia, we, we don't have the Valencia tested uh, uh, this year. Uh, we have three days off, and then we head down to Jerez for the Jerez test. Um, so, but yeah, I can I can definitely see. Uh, um, Lorenzo coming in for a wild card at, Val at Valencia, but also perhaps because if it is going to be uh, Rossi's last race, it would be a fitting send-off. Neil there uh, just trying to save money, just saying like, yeah, well, you might as well get Rossi and Lorenzo in action down in <laughs> Valencia for one last time. <laughs> yes, I would, uh, I would certainly buy a ticket for that. Just for, uh, for all of our listeners as well, as I said earlier on, we're going to try and get a Sepang preview show out in the next week as well, just to be able to get everyone up to date for the first pre-season test of the season. Sorry, Neil. 
just one final thing to add, Steve, uh, before um, before we kind of close things up, is uh, is just you know your impressions of uh, of where this leaves Chicati for 2021, because I think they made no secret uh, that well they admitted to speaking to Cordero, sorry to uh, Vinales at uh, at Mategi last year. Uh, there was obviously an offer uh, for him. Um, Cordero has been in their sights as well since uh, the middle of last season, it would seem. Um, I mean, this kind of um, narrows their options because really, like, who, who can they put on that bike for 2021 that, that would be a, a guaranteed winner? I mean, we've got Marquez, but that seems unlikely. And then who's after that? Alex Rins? I mean... One thing that I have heard is that, or well, there seems to be hints of it uh, floating around rather, uh, is uh, Ducati seems to be quite interested in Juan Mir. Um, uh, Mir had a really good uh, first season. Obviously, he was overshadowed by Fabio Quartararo, but everyone was. Um, he also had a little bit of uh, bad luck, so it would certainly be interesting. And there seems to be a little bit of friction in the uh, in the Suzuki garage as well. Rince and Mir, there seems to be some uh, they, some resentment between those two. Uh, I think it would certainly be an interesting uh, attempt. But then, you know, Ducati also have Jack Miller in the Pramac team. Um, they have uh, Fabio, well, uh, Banyaya, Pecco Banyaya. He had a pretty miserable tea, uh, season last year, but if he can find his feet in 2020, that might be interesting. Joan Zarco, what's Joan Zarco going to do on the 2019 bike? He would obviously have to completely, you know, basically be competitive with GP20s if he's going to be given the factory ride. But uh, uh, as you say, it's a fair point, really. Uh, Yamaha have scuppered all of um, uh, Ducati's carefully laid plans. For me, whenever I look at Ducati, obviously you'd be incredibly surprised if Jack Miller isn't moved up. When we were down at Valencia for the last Grand Prix last year, it was pretty clear that those possibilities of moving Miller up for this year in place of Petrucci was uh, very clear so for Ducati they'll almost certainly hire Miller now what that means for the other seat is do you want to have two new riders in there Petrucci very unlikely to stay on Davi's won a lot of races but in all likelihood isn't going to win a world championship for them do they move on from Davi if they do someone like Mir is a really good option for them if they can get him because they can bring in a rider that's going to have two years experience, just like what Yamaha did with Vinales when he moved across from Suzuki. They bring in a rider that's very highly rated, recovered well from his injuries in his Bruno te- in the Bruno test crash last year to have a very strong end of the season. He adapted really quickly to a MotoGP bike. If you listen back to the podcast that we recorded at the Valencia test as a rookie over a year ago, we all raved about how good he looked straight away on that bike. So, He's been able to kick on from that. If he's able to have a strong start to the season, he'll be very much in demand. And you would also think he'll be more in demand than Alex Rins. And when you look down the list of who else you can bring in, there's no one that jumps off the sheet and and you say, like, they're a guaranteed man that's going to be able to beat Mark Marquez in a straight-up fight. Unless we see someone really do something great at the start of the Moto2 season, which again will be a big risk for Ducati to move straight into their factory team, far more likely to move into the Pramac team to replace Miller, let's say, to have a junior rider in there. So someone like Mir could be very appealing to them. Miller, definitely. Or they could just look to still have a little little bit of stability with bringing Davi back for another year. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Dovi is he's the same generation as Lorenzo and Pedrosa. I think he's 33, 34 this year. I, I, 
I was quite surprised at how old he uh, how old he was. If he stays on again, we get the, the the same sort of story with Valentino Rossi. If he stays on, it'll be for uh, it'll be a year at a time rather than for uh, he's not going to get another two year contract from uh, from Ducati. Um, they are uh, Gigi Delina believes that all that is missing from his motorcycle from winning a championship is a rider. Um, that's why they went so hard after Vinales. That's why they went so hard after Quartararo. They will go after whoever they think can make the difference and win them a championship. And I think that's going to be a younger rider rather than an older rider. By the time the season starts, Davi will be just about to turn 34. So as you said, David, yeah, in that year-to-year stage. Also, what was interesting, whenever you hear the egos of riders or technical directors or technical chiefs like Gigi saying that it's always down to the rider to make the difference the bike is there obviously the rider such as what we've seen from Davi will always say this bike doesn't turn so there's always that conflict between the two but I think that as Neil said Ducati is going to be very interesting because they've missed the boat on their two prime targets for next season so that brings us to the end of today's show it was a bit of a Yamaha special and uh, luckily for all of our non-Yamaha fans for next week's show or the uh, Sepang preview show will be able to look forward to when MotoGP bikes are finally back out on track again. Dave, you're going to be out in Sepang as usual. That's always one of your pre-season hits and uh, you're you're always able to see on the ground far more in Sepang than in a lot of the other events through the year just because this is where everyone really does try and get as many miles under their belt, try and get themselves up to speed over the three days. Yeah, I mean, it's all, it, it's it's always good that I'm going to Sepang and then Neil is going to Qatar uh, because what you see at Sepang is basically um, uh, the big ideas they had over the winter, so you see the big changes. Uh, but at the Qatar test, what you see is basically uh, the pre-season bike, the bike which which they're going to be starting the season on, and the last minute, especially the aero, um, uh, especially the aero ideas, that sort of thing. Uh, so. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's really going to be interesting to see that. I, and I'm really looking forward to seeing um, uh, Aprilia's new bike. It's going to be interesting to see what, uh, what Yamaha bought. Uh, see what they see what the Ducati can do whether it turns a lot better. It's really going to be an interesting uh, it's going to be a really interesting test this time I think. We always have someone on the ground for all of the MotoGP races and also the MotoGP tests through the course of the season. Myself and Gordon Ritchie were out at the uh, Hareth and Portimao tests for World Superbikes and there should be a show dropping for uh, just reviewing those tests soon as well. So if you want to try and support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash paddockpasspodcast and it does make a big difference in allowing... Uh, David to go to the Sepang test or Neil to go to the Qatar test or just to events through the course of the season if you want to support the podcast be sure to follow us on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod and uh, like I said earlier on make sure that uh, you interact with us and you ask questions that you have through the course of the year and uh, we'll always endeavour to give you as informed an opinion as we possibly can about any of those ventures so as I said the next time you hear from David and Neil will be previewing the Sepang tests and uh, I have to say I'm really looking forward to seeing what will happen out in Sepang and uh, looking forward to being able to catch up with both of you in the coming weeks so Dave thanks for joining us once again on the show thank you and Neil thanks again thanks very much as always Steve and most importantly thanks to everyone for listening to this week's show so until the next time for myself Steve English Dave Emmett and Neil Morrison we'll all bid you adieu from the Paddock Pass podcast
Yeah, that was nowhere near being in time. <laughs> it was, it, it, you know, it was all sort of more or less on the same day, so uh, can't be too. Yeah, it's fucking, fucking good enough, Dave. It's fucking good enough. It's good enough. <laughs>